Chris. Welcome to Speaking and Destroy, episode 105. Speaking Destroy is the first podcast to feature interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guests this episode are OJ and Ryan of the band Byzantine. One of my favorite quarantine jams to come in 2020 was a ripping cover of The Shortest Straw from And Justice for All, featuring Speaking Destroy three-peat guest Doc Coyle of Bad Wolves on rhythm guitar, Chris Kale of Five Finger Death Punch on bass and some of the vocals. Another Speaking Destroy guest, Mike Portnoy of the Winery Dogs, Metal Allegiance, and of course, formerly of Dream Theater. Phil Demmel of Violence, and of course, formerly of Machine Head on lead guitar. And on vocals and rhythm guitar, OJ of Byzantine. As soon as I saw this, I knew I had to get OJ on here. OJ suggested that we also have Ryan accompany him, as Ryan is an even bigger Metallica fan than OJ. This had to have been one of my favorite conversations. I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. We talk a lot, of course, about discovering Metallica, about all the different times those guys have seen Metallica over the years, about Ryan doing one of the VIP experiences, being the runner-up and getting a pair of autographed drumsticks from Lars during a 90s Met Club contest to uh, do some artwork for the fan can, uh, James's reaction to the Creeping Death 12-inch Ryan had him sign. The evolution of the band, the evolution of various bands we love in general, including Opeth, Meshuggah, Paradise Lost. Each of the guys ranks the Metallica albums. They talk about their favorite riffs. It's a really fun conversation. If you are new to Speak and Destroy, there are over 100 episodes in the archive for you to listen to with great guests like M. Shadows of Avenged Sevenfold, Lizzie Hale of Hailstorm, Jamie Josta of Hatebreed, Gary Holt of Exodus and Slayer, Rob Halford of Judas Priest. Patreon supporters get access to bonus episodes called from my interview archives over the years with a lot of Metallica-adjacent people, including Serge Tankian of System of a Down, Glenn Danzig, and even a couple of my conversations from over the years with Kirk the Ripper Hammett. You can follow Speaking Destroy on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Subscribe to Speaking Destroy on YouTube on Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform of choice. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. The Speaking Destroy podcast theme that you are about to hear was written, recorded, performed, mixed by the great Scott Mellinger of the band Zayo. So here it is, my conversation with OJ and Ryan of Byzantine. This is Speak and Destroy.
I'm Ryan Postawait. I uh, played bass in Byzantine. Got into music probably around the age of 12 or 13. It's when I first got into sort of the heavier music with Soundgarden. Um, Super Unknown and, and Bad Motorfinger were sort of my go-to when I, I started to like, that's when it clicked with me like, oh, I like heavier stuff. Uh, and then I started to go back to like, because Metallica's Black Album was already out at the time. But I went back and I was like, okay, I, I, I know I like Metallica. I need to start going back into their catalog. And I, that's when I really got obsessed with, with heavy music and uh, just starting with the Black Album and moving backwards. Anytime I would get 20 bucks, I would go to the mall and buy Justice. I'm like, man, this is even better than the Black Album. And I go buy Puppets. I'm like, this is even better than Justice. So, so that's kind of how it all kind of came together for me. And then when I realized that I wanted to participate in the creation of music was specifically, and I've talked to quite a few guitarists from my, uh, my age group who have a similar story. Uh, it's when I saw Seattle 89 from the live shit uh, mm. box set. I specifically watched that for the first time. I, and I said, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to be like James Hetfield. It was the coolest it was specifically the thing that should not be from that set was the heaviest sounding thing I'd ever heard. So I'm like, I want to do that. Uh, so the following year is when I got a guitar, a real crappy, you know, a pawn shop uh, uh, strat copy. Not good, but it was something that I could at least rip on. Uh, and then just there we are. So 20 plus years later. Was it Metallica songs that you first figured out as you're messing around with the guitar? Yes. So, yeah. So, I, uh, you know, I, I, probably everybody started with like Inner Sandman because it was super easy. You could, you can kind of pick that out on your own. And, uh, and it's I'm, one, and it's one riff the whole song, basically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's got the key change for the pre chorus, which just goes up a, you know, up a whole step and then very easy song. So, the Black Album was really good for kind of uh, learning the easy stuff that. Whoever I may roam was a fun one to, to figure out. Um, so, yeah. And for those who are listening to this, and obviously, uh, you know, it's an audio medium, but in the background in Ryan's uh, studio setup, I can see a framed, what I believe is a Creeping Death 12-inch single. Good, good eye. Yeah, that is signed. Uh, <laughs> I met them a few years ago. Uh, they played here in Pittsburgh, and uh, I met all four of the guys, and I had... James, Lars, and Kirk all signed that one. And James was, he got a kick out of seeing that one because mm-hmm. it's like the old uh, Music for Nations blue vinyl release. And he's like, man, I haven't seen one of these in years. <laughs> so that's good awesome. eye on that one. Uh, and, and, we will, and we will be revisiting that story. What's that frame photo that's above that creepy That's guy? me hanging out with the guys. In the, I had a feeling. Like, yeah, yeah. And so I, that was I, the, like, I, the photo op. And I just want... Uh, if only listeners could tell how astute I am, because that is far away and blurry. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> I can I recognize their shapes. <laughs> that, that's fandom, everybody. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, so, OJ, uh, what was your uh, entry point into into music and into Metallica, even? And uh, and what mm-hmm. made you just? I got to be in a band. I can't just listen to this stuff. I got to. Well. I think if I want to go back to the genesis of it with with me, uh, my family's always been kind of musical. I've got cousins and uh, uncles and stuff that would always play at family reunions, get-togethers, and 
So uh, being musical was something that was not shunned upon early. Uh, it was later once my parents realized I took it seriously. But early, you know, it was it was cool to do with my family. And I remember uh, when I was probably third grade, you know, we always had MTV playing in the background constantly on the little, uh, you know, we got one of the little digital boxes that just played all the time. I remember hearing in in excess uh, this that little lick, yeah, need you tonight. Is that the song? Need you, yep, yeah. yep. And I remember for some reason I, I thought uh, I got to grab this tennis racket, put a shoestring on it, <laughs> and I would run around the hall doing that over and over and over. So. Uh, my parents realized I really like music, so they got me. Um, I had a little a little boom box, and uh, they allowed me to buy a couple cassette tapes. And um, first couple cassette tapes I, I bought was YNT, Billy Idol, and uh, my brother, who's five years older than me, gave me uh, Bark at the Moon, oh. and that was like a, a mindfuck experience for a little kid in grade school to hear something that evil that also had this beautiful, beautiful stuff that, you know, the guitarist was doing. So I carried that on, uh, just always listening to music up until junior high. My parents divorced and me and my mom had to move out of my home and we moved down the street and she got, you know, I, I ended up having a stepdad and he was a metalhead. So he let me hear. It's like the pandemic, uh, glass half full of a terrible exactly, situation. Yeah, <laughs> terrible situation. And here comes Metallica. So he let me he he let me hear and justice for all, and uh, that was the tipping off point right there. Uh, I had never listened to music at that point to where I constantly got goosebumps, and I did I couldn't understand why that was happening. So. The same, uh, around the same summer, you know, I'm in like ninth grade, I'm starting to skateboard and I run into about three or four other skate skateboarding guys in my town, which is a very small town, Southern West Virginia. So for four or five of us to actually own skateboards at the same time in the early eighties or late eighties was crazy. Uh, a couple of them played music and they wanted to start a band and they all like Metallica and right there was the whole like i think i'm going to do this for the rest of my life uh, it started with and justice did the same thing that ryan did i had to go back and listen to uh master of puppets all the way back to you know the first album so uh and i you know kind of haven't looked back since there's been a couple hiccups in my life but i've realized i'm a lifer so and i owe it to and justice for all for doing that Hell yeah. Uh, Long-time listeners of this podcast are will be unsurprised that I want to jump backwards and ask you, which Billy Idol record was that? I can't remember. Uh, that was probably 38 years ago, so <laughs> I really don't know. It was probably uh, probably Rebel Yell then, if I had to guess. I, yeah, because it had uh, it had the Eyes Without a Face on it, so that probably was Rebel Yell. Yeah, Eyes Without yeah. a Face was on Rebel Yell. Uh, Billy Idol was... Billy Idol, Adam and the Ants, and a couple others were my first 
Oh yeah. Music that I loved, you know, prior to discovering metal, you know, I was in elementary school. I wore like the one fingerless glove and yeah, I was a big Billy Idol <laughs> fan. <laughs> nice. There, there was just some super iconic riffs on that, that would yeah. stick in your ear. And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Steve Stevens, man. Yeah. He had that, yeah. uh, that guitar solo where, he stepped on that pedal and it made that machine gun noise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you could see, you could see like a through line from Steve Stevens, the Jakey e. Lee, you know, oh, yeah. kind of yeah. similar yeah. hair. <laughs> and even like, uh, you know, I would get into like rat because of Martini and his riffs. And um, yeah, I, I guarantee me and you at our age, uh, there's, probably millions of dudes our age that has these similar stories because yeah. that music was so pervasive and it was accepted in people's homes because mm -hmm. of uh, MTV. So that was great. Absolutely. Uh, that deck. I mean, they own that decade in terms of pop culture and music uh, without a doubt. So OJ, when you first started playing with these other skater kids that wanted to do a band, I presume those were cover songs. Were there Metallica songs in there? Our first gig was our high school talent show. We practiced for like two years uh, to get ready for it. <laughs> we threw we threw an original in there, but we also played um, we played a DRI song and nice. an Overkill song. Nice. So the uh, <laughs> high school uh, teaching staff thought it was atrocious, and all our all our friends and the cheerleaders they just loved it, and I was like. These people have no idea they're listening to something off of fucking years of decay. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they're like, yay. So, I mean, yeah, that, but it was mostly covers. That I mean, that was the first few Metallica shows more, more diamond head songs than Metallica songs. And they didn't, they didn't right. necessarily go out of the way to explain that they weren't their own songs. Yeah. <laughs> they just, I mean, them. we, we cut our teeth on Metallica riffs, uh, predominantly, but I do remember that we had such a hard time learning them. We would end up having to learn them by ear because we would get the, uh, I guess we would get the, uh, the tablature books, Wolf Marshall, maybe tablature books. And they would be all wrong. Like the <laughs> and justice, the and justice book. We was like, these guys have to have like 12 fingers to do this stuff. <laughs> Later yeah. on, I realized that the books were transcribed incorrectly. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. It was fun. What a what a what a travesty! <laughs> you know what I mean? That those all these kids getting those books and going like, all right, and then just going, well, this yeah. is impossible. Like, how many kids yeah. gave up on guitar <laughs> because of <laughs> oh, that? I know. You know? I know. Yeah. Ryan, was a uh, same question for you uh, when you first start playing in bands. Were there Metallica covers in those? Early uh, there jams? were. There were a couple. Um, so I started playing in a in a little high school cover band uh, with a couple of buddies of mine. Uh, I grew up in Jane Lou, West Virginia. So there was only, you know, it's, it's a town of like less than 500 people. So wow. kind of a, a small pool to, to pull from, from uh, fellow musicians, but a couple of good friends of mine, you know, started playing covers very similar to OJ. We, we played our high school talent show, uh, played one original and we played a, a Primus cover. Hmm because um, <laughs> the three of us in a band, we were so different musically that yeah, it was tough for us to find bands that we all kind of agreed on. So the, the stuff that we ended up writing sounded a lot 
like I brought the metal side. The bass player was more of a, a punk guy and the drummer was like a I don't know, sort of alternative rock. So he listened to like Presidents of the United States of America and things like that. So we ended up writing these weird, quirky sort of primus meets punk meets metal type of music. But and it got to the point that nobody knew that the primus covers that we were doing were primus. They thought that we wrote them. <laughs> uh, but uh, we did play a couple of Metallica covers in there, like uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls. I remember we, we could pull that one off okay. We tried to play one once that didn't go well <laughs> as a as a power trio and yeah it just and our drummer didn't have a double kick I'm like how are you gonna play so he ended up playing that that middle section with the four tom oh yeah yeah it just didn't work out but uh yeah so I think those are the two that I remember we we tried and for whom the belt tolls worked one not so much not so much yeah. Isn't that funny? You know, it, it makes me think of that phrase, uh, necessity is the mother of invention in small towns with such specialized subgenres of music. And you're trying to put a band together. Yeah, you, you oftentimes end up with, well, this person's tastes are close enough, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you to find two or three other people where your tastes are going to all line up perfectly. was virtually impossible in those situations. Yeah. But then you wonder how many cool bands happened because of incongruent pieces getting shoved together and then somehow that turned into something sure. and cool you know yeah. yeah if each of you could tell me the first time you had an opportunity to see metallica well uh the first time i had the real opportunity to see them um was i would say it was 89 i believe or 88 uh on the and justice tour nice um what year would that, that have been that would have been 88 and 89 okay. i, yeah, I saw so them I was... for the first time in july 88 which was monsters of rock which was right okay. before justice came out so yeah it would have been yeah. so the possibility of seeing them happened at that time um i lived 45 minutes south of the capital of west virginia which is charleston which is where i live now and at that time uh, the Civic Center here in Charleston, it holds about 11,000. Uh, it's 11,000 cap arena. And that's where all those bands would play. Um, I remember my friends getting tickets to that show and I really, really wanted to go. Unfortunately, uh, I was playing all-star baseball at that time, uh, like a 13, 14 year old league. And my dad was the coach. So, when I approached him that I would like to maybe miss a game to go watch Metallica, he, you know, he was like, there's no, no fucking way that my son is met. You're pitching tomorrow against the team that we have to beat to go to the States. I was so mad. I had to pitch the game that they were in there and I, my mom was not in it. Uh, so I missed that. But then you're I like think, you're like my stepdad would have let me go. My, oh yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but I don't know how much longer after that, but uh, I saw them come back through maybe three years later. Yeah, I was in high school at that time, and uh, they came back through by themselves, and uh, so it was like an evening with Metallica, really long set. Um, yeah, it was it was mind blowing. 
So I've it, seen them maybe three times since then, but it's been a long time since I've seen Metallica live. Uh, Ryan, how about you? A little bit later than than OJ, since I didn't get into Metallica till well into their Black Album touring cycle. Um, so I saw them. It would have been I think March of '97 on the Load tour um, with Corrosion of Conformity. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, and that was kind of like I'd kind of been listening to COC at the time, but that was like my first big exposure to to that band as well. So that was good because uh they're now one of my all-time favorites but i was gonna say as somebody who likes soundgarden and metallica yeah <laughs> yeah and like, and like that era of coc especially would just be oh like, most definitely yeah. um and it was a shame because i you know right around the time so it would have been i guess Lollapalooza in 96 is when metallica and soundgarden were headlining and they were playing i yeah. think in charlestown west virginia and, and i are wheeling yeah, and I yeah. could not go. Probably a similar situation. I was in sports and stuff during the summer, <laughs> and I don't think my my parents wanted me to skip out. So, uh, so that was unfortunate that I didn't get to see that. But yeah, uh, yeah. first time was March '97. Had to had to skip school for that one. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I got to see them on Lollapalooza, and I don't know if you remember the Lollapalooza that year. Did a thing where. You know, it was the same lineup, obviously, from city to city, except there was this group of like, I think, half a dozen or a dozen rotating bands that would be a surprise in every city. Oh, so okay. it was like, you knew you were going to get one of them. And it was like, I think Wu-Tang, maybe Rage Against the Machine. Uh, and one of the surprise guests was Waylon Jennings. Oh, and, wow. Nice. And Indianapolis, where I grew up, Waylon was the guest. And I didn't see this happen uh i was there but i didn't see this uh so maybe it's urban myth but supposedly waylon came on and people were booing him and hetfield walked out on stage in the middle of the day and was and admonished the crowd and was like this guy's here because i wanted him here this was my pick to have him on the show some respect and then uh and then he uh, he kicked into the dukes of hazard theme and everybody was happy <laughs> no, that's all that's all <laughs> as the story goes <laughs> so yeah so you seeing them in 97 i'm thinking uh and by the way of the many many cool things about metallica for people who don't know on metallica.com they have meticulous record keeping i mean every single show is on there uh with you know every support band every set list uh uh, they've got you know oftentimes there's even details that's like this was the 347th time they played seek and destroy it, it's it's pretty legit but yeah i'm looking at that uh poor touring me set list when coc was with them i saw that show in indianapolis to be february 97 yeah obviously it was a very load reload heavy set that's when they were still doing the quote-unquote short version of master of puppets in the encore do you remember much about that set or any, any kind of details or anything stand out from the show? Uh, I, if, if memory serves, they played that kill ride medley that yeah. they were going around that time. Yeah. Uh, so I remember that because that was, like you said, it was a very load heavy set. Uh, so they didn't really play a whole lot of stuff from that era. Um, I remember people next to me freaking out when that uh 
that stage started to collapse and all the lights started to oh, fall. Right. Yeah. yeah. That was um, that tour. Yeah. Uh, I, I could kind of tell something was not, you know, I, there was a little bit of, of fudging going on with uh, some acting and, and, you know, things weren't quite looking, you know, realistic, but there were people next to me were freaking out when they were pulling out stretchers, you know, taking members of the band and crew away on <laughs> stretchers and like, what's going on? Yeah. I, I, I thought it was really cool how they kind of handled that and came out and just had them all kind of with these sort of little combo amps. Small amps. amps. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it was like, it was Playing like the, the single light bulb came down. I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. They probably, I don't know if I'm remembering when I saw them or the, uh, cunning, cunning stunts, DVD, yeah. but I feel like they probably played, uh, motor breath that day. Um, very yeah, pro- probably uh, yeah. that that's on the set list from from the show i was at. I, I, yeah. don't, I, I i definitely don't remember song by song either it's kind of yeah. brushing up on it but yeah uh, you know what's crazy about that whole cutting stunts thing is you know obviously the internet did exist but it was so much less prevalent and ubiquitous in our lives and, and less accessible to most people and you know if i wanted to get on the internet i had to walk to a nearby college that i didn't attend and sneak into their computer yeah. lab you know, so uh, yeah, you just think about something like that. It's like you could never get away with pulling a trick like that on an audience. No, right? no. again, because yeah, after the first night, it would be like on Blabbermouth, like Metallica does yeah. this prank, and then everybody knows for the next you know, yeah two yeah, years. Tons of tweets, and everybody's like, "Oh, they faked this big." Yeah, so it, it wouldn't fly today, but yeah, yeah very what interesting year, back then. What year was that tour? Because I, I saw I, that 97. 97. Yeah, I, now that you started, when you started talking about the set falling apart, I do remember that I saw that tour in Pittsburgh. We were at the same show then. Were we? No <laughs> way. Must have been. Must have been. <laughs> yeah, because I remember awesome. one of the guys was on a ladder or something and acted like his foot got stuck in a wire and was dangling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was crazy. That was great. Do you remember either of you the next time you saw them after that? Oh, Lord. Um Ryan, you you got anything? I, I do. I, I can probably ramble off these dates <laughs> pretty easily. Yeah, let, let Ryan go. <laughs> uh, following time I saw them was uh, July of 98 for the, I guess, Reload Tour um, with uh, Days of the New and Jerry Cantrell. Yeah, that you know what? I saw that show too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. that was at uh, Star Lake Amphitheater up outside of Pittsburgh. I remember the the sort of acoustic set that they started throwing into the middle. Didn't they do like Four Horsemen? And, yeah, four and horsemen they did a lot of old songs acoustic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe Helpless. I think they would do every once in a while. Low Man's lyric might have been one. I'm trying to remember anything else that kind of stuck out from that. From that. Yeah, set. I think I think Low Man's lyric was part of that, and that, that yeah. might be that's got to be one of the only times that they ever played that song. Yeah, outside of their acoustic shows maybe a few years later i can't remember the last time they actually played that one live so that's kind of a, a rare one i remember they they would jam on like uh where the wild things are before that set would start oh, yeah just like a little bit like you know it's that was newstead maybe doing his thing like hey man this is one of the things i wrote let me uh, <laughs> yeah. let me, oh. let me get that in there what, was that in pittsburgh also yeah it's like it's burgettstown pa so it's it's Outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah, same, same with involved. Indianapolis. Yeah. Those shows were in Noblesville, Indiana, but yeah, yeah Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm looking at your set list, and yeah, it says uh, 
They did Low Man's Lyric, Four Horsemen, and Last Caress as part of the okay, uh, last caress. thing. Okay. You got Fight Fire with Fire at that show, which was... Oh, uh, yes, that's right. That was that's the... A, uh, that's a treat in 98. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I, I think they played that as part of the Kill Ride medley uh, in 97. But yeah, I, I was I remember being pretty stoked. I, mean, I think they played the full Master of Puppets that year, too. I think they'd stopped doing that half... Oh yeah, you're right. Maybe. You're right. Yeah, it says, um, they, it says they open with Bread Fan and then the the full Master of Puppets. Nice, that's killer. Yeah, uh, and they and you got to see Bleeding Me, which I've said many times on this podcast. But uh, Outlaw Torn and Bleeding Me are are two top ten Metallica songs for me. Yes. Hey, me too. Nice. Yeah. Which yeah. is as you also would know, especially being in a band like Byzantine, is a is an unpopular opinion in some circles <laughs> <laughs> to like any songs from that era. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm weird in that I I love Load a lot and I'm not too much a fan of Reload. I don't know what the what the divide is for me. I just think the the songs on Load are way stronger. I do too. Uh, I think there's yeah. a little more filler on Reload than there yeah. is on on Load, which is a blessing and a curse because I feel like Load uh, Reload has more of an opportunity to explore and experiment a little bit because it's such a denser, bigger record. I think than Load, yeah, but yeah. But Load definitely wins out through the strength of like, those are the best songs. And it's, mm. you know, a little more concise. Totally. Do you, do you, were they, uh, were they written at the same time? Do you think? Yeah. Like the same they, writing sessions? They, they were yeah. originally intended to be a double album. Uh, and my understanding is that it had just been going so long and there was so much material that at a certain mm. point somebody said, you know what, let's just cut it somewhere and get half of this out and then we'll come right. back and finish the other half. Yeah. You know, and, and this is something that I think about a lot actually when it comes to double albums and use your illusion style, you know, two records on the same day. For whatever reason, I've noticed from a sales perspective, the second one always sells just a little less than the first. And it's not, it's not normally like a huge divide, but, uh, and the illusion records are the exception. And I think they're the exception because you could be mine was the first single back after appetite. And it had the Terminator two tie in and then don't cry was on both records. So if you're going to the record store and you're like, I want to get that guns and roses album with don't cry on it. You, there's a 50, 50 chance you were going to get either one of them. Uh, and I, but every other instance, when bands do that, it's always just a little less. And the only thing I can think is that it must be a perception that we just have where we just assume, okay, well, part two is the lesser one. Like this, yeah, is, the, right. this is the it's the B-sides, yeah. it's the leftovers, it's the not good enough for the first one. Even if it yeah. isn't made that way. I just, I, I don't know, I find that interesting. Yeah. But even from a consumer perspective, you guys are talking about load and reload. We all three do feel that way. Right. Uh, that, right. that load is stronger. If, yeah. if we sit down and go track by track, it would it would yeah. come out of the head. That is so. interesting. But yeah, I know a few years ago, the band Periphery put out Alpha and Omega on the same day. Mm. And Alpha has sold, and, and it's by like a, a thousand copies, you know, but it's <laughs> sold like a little more than Omega. Yeah. And, and uh, I work with the band Demon Hunter and we put out in 2019, War and Peace on the same day mm -hmm. doing like a user illusion thing and war has outsold peace by just a little wow <laughs> and it's like well why they were written at the yeah. same time and released on the same day and you just assume and, and we didn't even necessarily say 
you know, you're just used to saying war and peace. It could be peace yeah. and right. war. We didn't even do like a one or a two, you know, but huh. it's like fans just somehow we just know we're like, oh, that second one, that's like the right. That's the bonus disc or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> also wonder if there is a small constituency of metal fans who just have enough money to buy one. They're mm, just yeah. broke. Mm. They're like, I'm just going to get this first one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because uh, it's hard as shit to find 18 bucks <laughs> to spend on anything. Yeah, no kidding. So, and yeah. then the bands that, uh, I think the ones that really hurt themselves strategically, Mark, from a marketing standpoint, you know, Five Finger Death Punch, Devil Driver, they've each done the thing where they did like a volume one and then volume two was like a year later. Mm-hmm. And for and for whatever reason, I feel like that just hobbling that second one even more by letting that yeah. time pass. And again, I don't know why, but it just seems that that's, that's just the way it goes, you know? Yeah. yeah, that's a good point too. If you can, if you can only, if you show up only with enough money to buy one, I guess you're going to buy the one you think is first yeah the strongest yeah. yeah the first yeah yeah and like and like you said oj here we are all talking about it as like seasoned fans and people that understand how bands work and yeah. we're also like yeah it loads better than reload yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy and that 98 show on that uh with jerry Cantrell and, and days of the new i love that they took jerry Cantrell on tour yeah because i think alice in chains was so clearly an influence on them in the load reload era and Soundgarden. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, as a Soundgarden fan, I, uh, you may have come across this detail, but uh, the original demo title for Until It Sleeps was FOBD for Fell on Black Days. Fell on Black Days. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. That yeah. was always an interesting little, little tidbit for me. Is when I found that, I'm like, ah, oh, that makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's Metallica doing Soundgarden, and and I always, <laughs> right. and I always th- think that's fair because you know those bands all had the same influences as one another in the first place. Sabbath, Zeppelin, yeah. Thin Lizzy, Aerosmith. You know, uh, for and I'm curious for each of your thoughts on this, but for you know as, as a fellow Load fan, whenever you hear people go like, "Oh, you know, Cliff would hate what Metallica turned into," Cliff Burton is one of those icons who was taken from us so early that he's frozen in time for better or worse yes. as perfection, you know, right. we, he, yeah. never had, he never had an opportunity to to live his life long enough to do something lame, you know, right. Uh, Kurt Cobain never got to become lame, you know, so it's kind of unfair to throw that on these guys. Uh, but especially though, when people say like, Oh, Cliff would hate Metallica in the nineties, I would argue if we're going to play a, a multiverse game, he would have taken them to load reload a lot faster we probably wouldn't have gotten Injustice for all. I mean, Cliff was Cliff like Simon and Garfunkel, you know, yeah, he, he was liked, like big in the yeah. Skinner and, and all yeah. that stuff. I easily see him being a fan of, of that type of, uh, that type Absolutely. of style. And yeah, it probably would have gotten them fat there faster. Who knows? Yeah. You even mm-hmm. see that interview with those interviews that are on Cliff them all where he's, they're doing press for master of puppets. And he's talking about how, you know, everything doesn't have to be, 5,000 miles an hour. Uh, you know, we've got some melodic stuff on here. And he's saying that in 1986. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. Come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but it's a, it's kind of a fantasy thing where, you know, it's like you want to freeze bands in time and not let them change, even as, even as you change as a person. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. But mm-hmm. what, what do you, what do you think that is? You know, and, and, and I guess drawing a parallel to your own career, you know, certain elements of a fan base where, the old stuff is always the best stuff. 
And then even the new record that people are like, it's not as good as the old stuff. A couple of records later, that record that used to be the new record is now the old stuff. That <laughs> You're like, wait, I remember when that came out, you said it wasn't as good as the old stuff. Now that's the one you're holding us to. What do you guys think about kind of that phenomenon and why we do that as fans? I think hmm, that's, a, that's a tough question. Uh, I think we just get used to something that we love and we, you know, maybe naturally don't want to see that change and I've, I've been going on a like a huge anthrax kick lately um it's so the anniversary I, I, and the if you've yeah, watched the yeah, documentaries yeah, and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. you know all the youtube videos that i Same binge here. and all of them and yeah. i i go back and forth like of course everybody loves the Donna era but i'm also a big john bush era fan but i can understand you know one not liking the other maybe or the you yeah. know people when when bush came on are like well it's not belladonna i don't want to i don't want to you know touch it whatever it is i'm not sure but i i think it's just deep down like i just i know what i like and i want more of it you know and that's you've got bands like acdc and slayer who will gladly just keep <laughs> giving you that and it, it's not really going to change much and and it's very pleasing to fans um uh, i can at least say as an artist i i probably would get bored writing the same album over and over and over again I, I would need to get you know need to change it up a little bit just to just to stay fresh um yeah from a fan perspective i think it's mainly just not wanting uh you know any change in your diet you know <laughs> some of these bands become such institutions where you know i think about it like the star wars franchise where even Return of the Jedi, if you were of a certain age, you were like, oh, the Ewoks, and you know, and then it was like, oh, I'm so excited for the prequels, and Lucas is Lucas is going to do whatever he wants. He's got full creative control, and then nobody liked him, and then uh, and then you know, Abrams comes back and is like, I'm gonna I'm gonna make one that feels just like the original ones, and then people go, well, this is too much like the original ones, and the Last Jedi comes out, and everybody <laughs> goes, is, yeah, why this is, is too different. different. How come Luke's not the way I wanted him to be? Why didn't this happen the way you know? And uh, yeah, the ownership, the entitlement that that fans start to develop. Um, yeah. It can be really confining, I would imagine, for the actual artists. Mm -hmm. yep, it's absolutely. damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'd personally rather see writers, directors, bands be true to themselves first. And then yeah. kind of, you know, and then make a fair decision about whether or not it's for me. I, I, my argument is always that it's time, place, and circumstance. Like who were you and where were you when you discovered mm -hmm. the band, the movie? whatever how old were you what else had you heard that was like that what else did, you know what i mean and then yeah it's always going to be that you know because i've had i've had people on the podcast who were you know 16 when san anger came out you know so it's like their their read on on the arc of metallica and what matters and what's good and what isn't and uh is totally different than somebody yeah. who you know and then and then people that are older than oj and i that are like well ride the lightning had a ballad yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. They sold out. Yeah. There's a yeah. there's a ballot on there. I think it, I think it's I think personally it's largely to do with you. Band like Mashuga is a good example of that cuz I got into Mashuga around the Destroy Race and Improve at the end of that uh before Chaos Fear came out. But there are people, you know, 10 years younger than me who never heard that version of Mashuga. They started with the eight string like slower mm -hmm. version of Mashuga, and that's their Mashuga, and like, and that's the version of Mashuga that I'm like, eh, I kind of like the, the more chaotic uh, seven string vibe yeah. of them better. 
yeah, it's, it's just a matter of like, if I would have been born 10 years earlier, maybe I would have thought the same way. Who knows? Yeah, there's people who love, you know, their version of death is scream bloody gore and leprosy. And yeah. my, mine is individual thought patterns and symbolic. I think one of the best examples for me the, of falling in love with the band that had a certain uh, defined sound and then seeing them change each album to the point where four or five albums down the road, they're completely different. Yet I changed with them mm. because I age along with them is Opeth. Ah. Um, when I, when I first got into Opeth and hearing Still Life and Blackwater Park, it was so bleak and just cold sounding, but they were always so melodious that you could instantly tell that they were never going to, to stay that same because they had this wealth of musicality to, to draw from. And as they aged and changed, I aged along with it and really enjoyed every album to the point now it's like 70s prog uh, and I can still love it almost as much as I do Blackwater Park. But I've yeah. talked to some friends of mine and I don't know why, but they're locked in that time capsule to where they're like, anything where if he doesn't scream on the album fuck him you know <laughs> right. what I mean? and i'm like right. yeah. how can how can you how can you give him you know the stoplight on that the, they're so so great but Meshuggah, all of them yeah i think it's like you said time and place it's also um damned if you do damned if you don't <laughs> I, as a, as a musician who's been doing this one band for 21 years, mm -hmm. I don't listen. I don't listen to fans at all. I have discussions with them and we talk, but I never take it home or to the hotel and be like, man, they just, they just really like our debut album. Why don't we go back and record a shitty sounding album again? You know what I mean? <laughs> so they'll be happy. They'll be happy, but the other people who just got into us two albums will hate it. So it's like, at the end of the day, you got to make yourself happy. And, you know, what happens, happens. Because that's how you started in uh, the beginning, right? And I, and I think that that's what's so great about Metallica is that was always their attitude. And I think that something some fans miss is that they maintain that attitude throughout every phase. They did exactly what they wanted to every step of the way. It was never yeah. like they were never trying to cater to anyone other than themselves. And that's that to yeah. me is what makes a band great. Even if they make things that you don't personally like, if you can sense that it's real, you know, yeah. it's them. Yeah. You're, I'll, I'll see your Opeth and I will raise you a paradise lost. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the band for me too, where I, I got into them, you know, early and really loved that early sound and yeah. grew and changed with them as a listener, you know? And by the time yeah. that, they sounded like Depeche Mode. I was like, I love Depeche Mode. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it works for me. I, yeah. And then by the time that they cycle back around and they're like, we're going to incorporate some more of our traditional sound and whatever, I was at a point where I was like, yeah, I'm ready for I'm ready for this to come back around. You know, it's you, interesting. You know what? Uh, you saying that made me think of something I've never thought of before. If, we, if it would have been reversed and uh, if we were younger and you would have heard the newest version of Paradise Lost, you probably wouldn't have liked them at all. If That's I would have heard point. the new Opeth when I was 17, I, I, yeah, they wouldn't hit my radar at all. But yeah. Luckily, we get to grow with some of these bands. And, you know, it's also age. Uh, like, I talk with uh, 
some of my friends in uh, older bands and I've asked them stuff about Metallica or about Slayer because they are from that era. Like I talked to, uh, you know, uh, Phil Demmel from Machine Head yeah. and uh, asked him about it. You know, we were, we were talking about Slayer. He don't, you know, because he filled in for of Slayer course. on this last tour. Like minutes after being out of Machine Head. <laughs> like exactly. Next, you know, minutes. Two weeks later or something, yeah. Uh, he was like, I literally, I only like the first couple albums. <laughs> um, <laughs> talked to Gene Hoagland, uh, you know, about Metallica and stuff, and they only like, oh, I only like Kill Em All. And I'm like, right. I, I get it because you guys are, you know, when, when, uh, when that came out, you were around that era. You saw yeah. them. And then when it changed, yeah. you were still young and you were like, nope, you've, you've pushed out. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. When yeah, I had, older cats only like the old stuff. Yeah. When I, when I had David Ellison on and he, he loves Metallica, Ron McGovney is the bass player for him. Cause really? no life to leather was the first Metallica he heard before yeah. kill Em all was out. And when they started Megadeth and they were playing mechanics, he learned the Ron McGovney way of playing mechanics from the demo to where right. by the time he that heard Four Horsemen yeah. and Cliff and everything, it was just like, well, this is, you know, it's in the song yeah. the way I know it and love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Interesting. Uh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and how that changed. And, and also how it's hard to, when you're in your own band to see the forest for the trees. Cause I, as a journalist, you know, I've, I've, I've interviewed a lot of bands where they're at a stage where they're, their sound is changing their aesthetic whatever it is and they're feeling that frustration of certain fans not being with it but then you have a separate conversation with the same guy from the same band about some band he loves and he's like oh yeah man then when they i only like them up until this album and then when they change blah blah blah, blah, blah and it's like well you're doing the yeah. same thing about every other band that your fans are doing to you um yeah. it's kind of hard to see yeah i think true fandom is uh not necessarily loving every single thing an artist does, but giving everything a shot and yeah. recognizing yes. this phenomenon. Yes. So OJ, tell me how the quarantine cover song with uh, mm -hmm. Speak and Destroy's only three-peat guest, Doc Coyle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how to tell me how that all came together, the genesis of that. The uh, Well, you know, at that point, you know, I wasn't really doing anything musically, um, other than building this music facility that I'm in right now. That's what I spent most of my pandemic doing. But I have a friend, uh, you know, Chris Kale from uh, uh, Five Finger Death Punch is an old, old friend of mine. He's a Kentucky boy. And uh, his band, before he joined Five Finger, would open up for us. Uh, back, back in the early Byzantine days, we played Tennessee or Georgia or Kentucky. So I've known Chris forever, and he obviously, since they weren't touring, that's his uh, sole financial, you know, that's his thing. So he was doing a lot of setting and being bored, and uh, he just contacted me and said, hey, would you like to do one of these quarantine jams that are popping up on, on the internet? Yeah. Uh, let's, let's do a Metallica song. So it was Chris's idea, and I was like, man, yeah, let yeah, you know, let's give it a shot. I I personally don't do any um guest vocals on anything. I just 
I tried to do the one trick pony Byzantine and that's it. But I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll you know, I can't pass up playing with Chris. So uh, he said, you know, why don't you uh, see who you can get? So I contacted Doc and Doc was always up for it. He's up for everything. <laughs> Good time. And then I contacted Chris Adler to do the drums. And since, uh, and Chris was trying to reinvent his new, you know, come, coming out party. Sure. And he told me, he's like, you know, it's a great idea, but I really think I need to kind of wait and, you know, do it on my own terms when I come back out. Plan. Yeah. Reestablish so, himself as. Reestablishing yeah, himself. That makes sense. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, you know, uh, he also, at that time, you know, I I hadn't landed a couple of the other guys. Phil Dimmel wasn't on. I di I didn't know if Doc was in, so uh, it might it just looked like me and Chris. <laughs> so uh, Kel was like, "Hey man, uh, do you uh, you know Mike Portnoy?" And I was like, <laughs> "No, but I would love to." <laughs> and you're like you're like which instrument does he play? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was probably listening to the images and words at that time when he was texting that. But uh, I said, if you think he would do it. And within like six hours, Mike contacted us back and said, yeah, man, I already learned the song. I'll track it tomorrow. <laughs> so it went really quick after that. So then we got Phil, uh, Phil Demmel to do the lead just to pop in. Uh, I recorded my parts here at, at the, uh, you know, in our studio, which is called Seven West. Uh, it's in the music facility. Everybody put it together. And then Chris had the idea of like, hey, man, won't we do the the different parts of the vocals? So he helped on the verses and I did all the courses. I thought it turned out pretty cool. It's oh, amazing. I thought it turned out really cool. And I, and I like that Phil Demmel sort of surprise. I like the way you guys did that, even with the video component of like. Yeah, Phil yeah. Popping in I for the solo. I was worried how it was going to turn out because, uh, you know, I knew I didn't really have the time nor the money to to edit any of this stuff, but Chris is like, you know what? We've got a studio here in Las Vegas. The guy who records all the Five Finger Death Punch stuff, he'll mix it. The Five Finger Death Punch is a videographer. We'll do the video, and I'm like, all right, sign up. <laughs> You're like, you mean I just show up and play? All right. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah, I just yeah. come down to my own place and sing and, <laughs> yeah. and do my guitar play. So I've known the song since I've been in high school. But knowing the song and having to perform it, knowing that hundreds of thousands of people were going to judge you, yeah, was was really a whole different level. Like I had to, I had to really get it into James's head more than I ever thought I would, and I realized how much uh, more of a rhythm beast he is. The right hand yeah. of Hetfield. Yeah. The right hand of God. Yeah. I, that's, <laughs> I pride myself at being a pretty good rhythm guitar player. And that, you know, that song's not one of their hardest, but I was like, holy shit, just to make this sound that good, it's impossible. So <laughs> we'll do what we can. Yeah. So, um, but it got, it got a lot of traction. Uh, not putting it on the Byzantine YouTube page was a great idea. <laughs> we was able to, <laughs> We was able to put it on Mike Portnoy's and yeah. uh, Chris's, uh, so it got a lot of traction. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The hierarchy of the YouTube channels. Yeah. Yep. Do you know if uh, if if Metallica had any awareness of that, or if it ever hit their radar after it came out? 
Uh, I do not know. You know, I've uh, I've been wanting to ask Doc because I know he plays in Kirk Hammett's wedding band, mm -hmm. and I know Chris uh, and Phil all have a connection to yeah. them some way. And, but and, and Portnoy, a very yes, yeah, and Portnoy. Yeah. So I just never asked. To tell you the truth, I thought maybe if it, if it happened, they would let me know. But uh, I don't know. Maybe that's something I need to dig into. I bet it's happened. Um, I think they pay. I, I bet I, they've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I think they pay I'm, more attention than, than some people might think. Yeah. They might look at it and be like, this is great. I wonder, you know, whose grandpa did they get to sing? <laughs> <laughs> if, if you, uh, if you take about five minutes and go through the YouTube comments on that, it's classic. Me and my wife have laughed our asses off at, <laughs> at the comments because I'm the, I'm the unknown guy in the whole group. And they're like, why is this folky fucking singing? He's awesome. You're yeah. I mean, so. Well, it's good. That's a fringe benefit for you too. And also I'm sure there's Byzantine fans of the comments that are like, you know, they get, oh, they, yeah. they get the opportunity to be too cool. Like, Oh yeah. I, they're like, where are you I, at? I'm, I'm, you. I'm, away, I'm away here for that guy. I don't know who these, all these other posers are. I'm here for OJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. That's <laughs> awesome. So I'd like to throw this question out to both of you and i'll um, i'll ask you first ryan having learned all of those metallica songs in such a formative days of playing uh when you put on a guitar now and you're warming up what <clears throat> riffs are most likely to come out of your hands if you're if you start riffing on a metallica song uh usually battery i don't know why probably because there's like a in college me and a a, a buddy of mine uh terry we decided we were just going to get it as good as we possibly could a guitar. <laughs> and so we would just spend like, we programmed a bunch of uh, Metallica and Slayer drums and we would just go down in this basement and just crank the PA and just spend all day playing battery and no remorse and uh, war ensemble and just try to get as fast and as intricate as we could. Um, so now I, for whatever reason, whenever I pick up a guitar, battery just comes out. Nice. Hmm. What about you, Jack? Let's give them. I would say if you know if the two that kind of come to mind for me that I instantly like to to play around with is Disposable Heroes. Love that triplet and just the chord progressions on that. And then Dyer's Eve. Oh um, yeah. Really love. Uh, a lot of times I'll just once I get done rehearsing the set, I will go over to Dyer's Eve, uh, put my headphones on, play through it as basically just to, to clean out the pipes. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. if, once you get through Flush. that, yeah, the lactic acid's in your elbow, and, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, now, now I'm ready. Now the set's going to be easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that song has, that song's like an athletic workout, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that covers all, covers all the bases. Yep. That's killer. Sure does. Ryan, and, and feel free to take your time, because I know this is, this is a big question. Where do you rank each of the Metallica records? With respect to the idea that it changes from time to time. It do, I know it does for me. It's easy to go back and forth for me for uh, Puppets and Justice being number one. I mm. more often than not will put Puppets as number one, um, simply because uh, you know, the thing that should not be is kind of the song that wanted to made me want to play guitar. Um, and the production obviously is a little better on Puppets. But if we're going, we're we're just talking studio albums, not oh yeah, not Garage Inc. Okay, 
I love uh, that you. I love that you would even ask that though. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> where's Lulu and all this now? I'm joking. <laughs> so puppets, justice, uh, ride. I might get flack for this, but I'd probably put load. I love it. Then kill them all. I love it. And then probably black album after that. And then let's see, we've got reload, Saint Anger, Hardwired, and uh, Death Magnetic. Right. I'm going to go from that point. Hardwired, Death Magnetic, Reload, Saint Anger. I'm with that. I'm a, I love Hardwired. <laughs> Yeah, I, I appreciate and approve of your high ranking of load. <laughs> Just, hey, I, like I said, I'm probably going to get some some shit for that one. Yeah. How could you possibly put load above Gilmore? But uh, <laughs> I just, I love both of them probably equally, but uh, I don't know. I just love listening to load. But uh, I, I do like Hardwired a lot. Me too. Uh, between that and Death Magnetic, I find Hardwired not talking production values and mastering levels and all that stuff. I'm leaving that aside but i feel like hardwired is they kind of i feel like death magnetic they were trying to kind of what we're talking about like oh we need to just go back to the old sort of like way of songwriting i think as you listen to that album you can kind of hear them trying to figure that out again you can see this the Uh, stitches like yeah 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 like you listen to the the day that never comes and you're like okay that's just like the fade to black formula sort of thing going on i think with with hardwired they kind of just said you know, fuck it. Let's just write whatever, whatever sounds cool, whatever comes up because you get, you know, songs that are super long and then you've got, you know, the opening track, which is you know three minutes long. So I, I just feel like the, the songwriting was a little tighter on that one. Some of the, you know, some of the songs got a little, little long. I feel like there could have been a little bit of editing on uh, maybe some Bob Rock sort of finesse on like cutting the songs a little bit, but uh, yeah, I, I really like Hardwired a lot. Yeah, me too. And I, and I feel like to your point, uh, and I, I like Death Magnetic, you know, All Nightmare Long is a great song. There's songs on Death Magnetic I really, really love. But yeah, I yeah. feel like Hardwired, as you said, it, it kind of incorporates a lot of the things that were important that returned on Death Magnetic. But it also, I, I feel like they found a happy medium between Black Album, Load, Death yeah. Magnetic, you know, it, it, it's it's cliche to say about a band's new record, but I really feel like Hardwired is one of those records that encompasses all the records that came before. Yeah, they kind of mixed everything because you can definitely hear some load in that record. Like he's doing the, he's doing the vocal kinda... harmonies again, too, because yeah, the vocals yeah. are so dry on, on Death Magnetic. And yes, the yeah, richness yeah, came so, back. Yeah. So I was very happy hearing just some sort of slow groove happening like uh uh what's that uh, dream no more yeah the uh, the cthulhu song on, on hardware when i first heard that song, i'm like all right yeah this is this is uh this is a nice change of pace yeah. so yeah uh murder one that's another one too that's just like a yeah. grooving you know mm-hmm. kind of but big kind of black album song i was just gonna throw out spit out the bone is you know probably a lot of people say this but that's the best song they've written who knows a long yeah. time long time that song's rad, and I, I love now yeah. that we're dead. I love the uh, the little the extra percussion and the yeah, just the just the interesting you know for all the jokes about like you know Lars not wanting to play something that's stock and whatever it, he he came up with something really inventive and, and unique drum wise in that song that I don't think anyone else would have done. Yeah, it makes it you know that much more exciting that song. 
OJ, now you've had an opportunity to listen to us and think of your own ranking undoubtedly simultaneously. How do you rank the albums? It uh, probably doesn't change much at all. Hmm. <laughs> what you guys were saying. Uh, for me, uh, you know, and Justice and Master is my two favorite all-time metallic albums, but I think just for production alone, because I'm a, I'm a, you know, I think Fleming Rasmussen really nailed nailed it on Master. So I would have to go Master of Puppets as my favorite, and then it would be And Justice for All. Um, then I would have to go Ride the Lightning. So it's going to go bounce back and forth like that. Ride the Lightning, and then the Black Album because uh, the production on that and there's some songs on that like my friend in misery that is just beautiful beautiful mm -hmm. songs then i'm gonna have to go to load hardwired because uh yeah i was going to say death magnetic before hardwired but after you guys started tearing them <laughs> to the points i was like they're right his vocals sounded much richer and uh they actually put harmonies in so mm -hmm. And then I forgot that Spit Out the Bone was on there. Which yeah. Is, yeah, which is great. So it would be a hardwired Death Magnetic. And then I'm going to have to jump all the way back to Kill Them All. I would put that higher, but there's, a, there's a, what, two covers on that? Uh, the re-release version had the, two, had the two covers yeah. and bonus tracks. Yeah. 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 Got the covers and then, you know, the bass. Uh, and then I think a lot of the songs on there – they weren't as original as they were later. They were probably pulling a ton of budgie and thin Lizzy riffs, lifting yeah. stuff, as we all do when we're 17, 18. So that's close to the end. Uh, and then the only two I like less than uh, that would be Reload and then St. Agner. So there's not much change other than the Fleming Rasmussen days. I don't think I've had anyone on the podcast yet who has put St. Anger higher than last. <laughs> I might be yep, misremembering yep. that, but. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, a, a snare drum being the most repetitive uh, instrument played on an album has to sound good. It just has to. And that snare drum sounds awful. And if that had a great snare drum, uh, I probably would have put it higher, but just couldn't get by. Couldn't get by. That. I was a uh, 2005 or 2006. I was uh, visiting good friends of mine in the studio, uh, the band Zayo, who actually have a tie to West Virginia. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. They were in Chicago recording with Steve Albini and it was, it was close enough. It was within a year or so of some kind of monster coming out that like, that was a topic of conversation. So we're the, the band and I were talking about it and Alb Albini's just working. He's got his little, jumpsuit on and he's messing with the reel to reel and he's not saying anything he's goes back to us and we're all just talking 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 metallica 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 some kind of monster and as the conversation's like winding down we've been talking for like 15 20 minutes about it albini just says you know what i don't understand and he, and he still hasn't even turned around he's just like cutting tape <laughs> they made like a three-hour documentary about that album the making of that album right and not once do they address the fucked up snare drum? <laughs> it's like, you know, for all the strengths of that, like flawless documentary. Yeah. He's, he's right. He's right. Yeah. I now I think about it. They don't mention it once. They talk about the lack of solos. They don't talk about the snare drum yeah. once. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I wonder if that was spoken about in the production meetings before. It had then. to be. And Lars is like, "Oh yeah, anyone mentions this, I'm walking out." 
Uh, there's we'll a bag on James's about. alcoholism. We'll bag uh, yeah. on uh, everything, but not my snare. <laughs> yeah, there's there is a great video on YouTube where a fan, it's like a meet and greet. It's years later, uh, it's, it's having him sign a snare drum, and somehow they start talking about the San Andrew snare sound. And uh, and Lars is like, "You want to know the secret to the San Andrew snare?" Sound? <laughs> and he just like does it to the snare right there, and he's like, "That's all it is." <laughs> and, and, and then he, he i forget what the exact joke is i'll have to find the clip but he says something like uh he's like he's like black album like yeah. 16 million and then he's like saint anger 1 million it's <laughs> 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 pretty awesome yeah. well gentlemen i appreciate both of you making the time to do this before we wrap up i do want to revisit all the way back to the top of the conversation ryan uh, a little more about that story about meeting the guys and uh getting that creeping death single signed was that the first time that you had ever met the band uh yes first time i've i've, I've met the band not my first sort of like uh, you could probably see you know beside the creeping death there's some framed drumsticks as well ah. so that, those are uh, autographed by lars when uh, I was part of the fan club in the mid to late nineties yeah. and they did this, uh, this art contest uh, for people to send in their, their design ideas for the, for fan can four. I think it was four uh, that they were going to. And so you would you know send in your designs and then Lars would uh, judge it. And then you would, you know, see the winners in the next issue and they, they would send you your prize. That was my prize for getting, I think I got second or third place. Oh. So he sent me those sticks, which was kind of cool. Did they show your art in So What magazine? They did, yeah. So it's in, I, I, so probably it would have been maybe 98. So if you go back and, and look, I, I, I literally, all I did was just rip off Pusshead art. I just <laughs> made, made a Pusshead skull bleeding into a paint can, and that's all I did. Nice. Uh, so I got a pair of Lars's <laughs> autographed drumsticks out of that, but. So yeah, and uh, this would have been October of 2018. Uh, they played up here in Pittsburgh. I did the VIP thing. Uh, just I just sprung for it. I'm like, I, I have, I got to meet these guys. This might be my last chance. Who knows? So I just sprung for it. How much? You know, oh, <laughs> let's just say it was more than a it was more than a paycheck. A gentleman never tells, right? Yeah. yeah and, uh, <laughs> I, Do you I get paid wife, once a week or twice a week? <laughs> twice a week. So, wow. Or, sorry, okay. twice twice a month. Twice a month, sorry. Uh, okay. But I, I did ask my wife. She's like, I don't give a fuck. What do you do with your money? Do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I uh, sprung for it. You know, it was a very cool experience. Um, basically, you got to do the whole backstage. Uh, you know, they had a buffet and beer and all that stuff. They had their, their inter-night pills or on tap, I think. I uh, had a couple of they had all their instruments set up so you could go around and play you know james's snake bite and kirk had one of his esps uh, lars had his drum kit rob had his bass. they had axe effects so you could go up there and just and they had ipad set up so you can just like click on a song and just play along to it wow uh, it was That's a lot cool. of fun yeah they had that traveling museum from you know all the stuff from their past that they just had set up in these glass cases you can just go around and look at like handwritten lyrics and, and stuff some eclipse bases uh which were really cool to see up front and then they're like all right everybody you know who did the 
big VIP thing, come with me. And there's maybe 15 or 20 of us. And they stuck nice. us in the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, locker room and uh, brought the guys back. And uh, yeah, we probably chatted with each each member for five, six minutes apiece. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, really cool to first one I met of the bunch was Lars and uh, he's, his memory is just sharp. You know, he was asking when the last time I'd seen Metallica was, I'm like, honestly, I haven't seen you guys since uh, you know, I first saw you in, in, in 97. He's like, Oh, that was, you know, COC. If that <laughs> yeah. was the Pittsburgh show. That was at the civic arena, March, such and such 97. <laughs> he can rattle all that stuff off. But uh, uh, I told him like, yeah, I play in a, you know, a band called Byzantine that's on Metal Blade Records. He's like, oh, Metal Blade. I, I'm, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Should be. So, uh, yeah, it, just a little bit. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm uh, old friends with Brian Slick. Tell him yeah. I said hi. You're like, yeah, we're on Metal Massacre 37. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, he was, he was a lot of fun to talk to. It just, just full of energy like you would expect. Did, uh, did you tell him about the drumsticks? I don't think I had a chance to. I think like it just by the yeah, time they started got, rotating, a lot you're trying to cram yeah. into five minutes. Yeah, yeah it's it's <laughs> difficult. Like once you're sitting and talking to those guys, yep. time just kind of flies. Uh, James, um, obviously being the the sort of catalyst for me to, to pick up a guitar was kind of a big deal for me to meet. And I didn't realize like I'm six one, so I'm not a short dude. And Hetfield kind of towered over me. I was like, Jesus, how tall is this guy? <laughs> it's like six three. I don't know how to just six. I don't know. He's just yeah. as he walked up, I'm like, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> Shook that, you know, that right hand of God and uh, <laughs> heard that laugh. And we we talked about uh, you know, the thing that should not be and how that kind of started me playing guitar. He was like, Oh yeah, it's it's one of those uh, that was always a lot of fun to play and he's i think he's the one that brought up the primus cover of that and i you know so we started talking about primus a lot and, uh, so that was fun and uh, yeah we just we were talking about like new music that had been coming out the new coc record had just hit he's like yeah that one's a lot of fun that was really good uh, uh so it was good to like hear that that hetfield laugh up you know right in your face uh kirk was he was fun uh he was wearing like a pineapple sweater like he's just <laughs> yeah you know, he's just being his quirky self. But we talked about H.P. Lovecraft since I, I knew he's I'm a very much a horror guy. I, Same. I, I could have talked shop with him all day about horror stuff, but we kind of landed on H.P. Lovecraft and talked about that a lot. Uh, Rob, obviously, since I play bass uh, for Byzantine, I talked to him about you know, just bass stuff. And uh, yeah, they were all really, really awesome guys and uh, had them sign the Creeping Death. And I uh, had the other guys sign the hardwired vinyl uh, so i've got a copy of that signed by everybody so right. uh, yeah, yeah I Ryan, uh, uh tell him about uh you uh getting to listen to their inner monitors while yeah yeah like so um so part <laughs> of that package is uh you were able to they gave everybody these um these sort of like receivers they kind of look like uh little ipods and um with earbuds and <laughs> You could just scroll through, and during the, the set, you could just change who's in your <laughs> monitor mix you you wanted to listen to. Wow! So I, I remember I I distinctly remember I did it during Sad but True. I don't know why I picked that song, but I was like, all right, this is the I probably because I'm so familiar with that song. I've heard 
live every single time I've seen them. I'm like, all right, now I can just sit around and play with this. But it was very interesting that, you know, I with the way Byzantine, we started using the in-ear monitors. We like a full mix of everybody. Mm-hmm. Like kind of how you would kind of hear it out in the crowd, the Metallica mixes, each member just basically wanted to hear themselves. Like a little bit of like Lars was basically all him and a little little James. But James is like mostly him. I don't think there's any <laughs> Kirk in his mix. So it's it's they probably don't hear <laughs> each other yeah. much at all. Uh, and you wonder how much, you know, because we're playing these small clubs and we practice in a, a much smaller room. So I wonder how much of the venue mm. noise comes through their in-ear monitors. That's true. That's why they're kind of, they get that full mix, but they're hearing a little bit more of themselves higher than the rest of the band. Yeah, I guess your I guess your monitor mix would be a totally different thing when you're playing a giant venue with yeah. a giant. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I can't imagine yeah. they would be able to follow each other as a band without hearing what everybody else is doing, you know. So so that would be my guess now that we've been kind of messing with that the past couple of years. But mm-hmm. it's very interesting. Very, very cool little tidbit to that VIP thing that uh yeah i I remember that's so i mean mean, and also i mean that speaks so much to the transparency and the relationship that they've always had with their fans that that would even be something that's available to yeah yeah trip out on and study exactly exactly i'm reminded of some interviews that jason did once upon a time where he talked about how lars doesn't have any bass in his monitors and i don't know if that's continued to be the case but and then there was I think one of the guys from Gojira recently. There were some interviews you guys might have seen where he was talking about mm-hmm. being like with Big Mick or something. And yeah, uh, and that yeah, um, he was talking about how how Lars, you know, everybody's really just following James. I think that type of mix also eliminates any uh, uncomfortable conversations after the show. If somebody has a really poor show. Unless, unless it's a huge mistake, then it's kind of like nobody else notices. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Man. And that's so cool that you got to have that opportunity to, to talk to them and, and tell them a little bit about the significance that the band has played in your life. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, without cheesy to say, but without, I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be, you know, playing music i wouldn't be playing guitar um without that band like that's just how it is and i'm sure it's the same way with tons of people out there so it's it was it was a an honor to be able to thank all of them for for that uh and just kind of have that come full circle have you uh followed the 30th anniversary box set stuff as it's been rolling out yes i have yeah yeah so i've i've got all of them uh pre-ordered the black album i'm you know, very eagerly. Uh, there's like, what is it, like six live DVDs in that set or something? It's yeah, and then the blacklist thing where it's like fifty something artists. 53, yeah, three fifty four. Yeah, so I'm very, uh, very excited to to get my hands on that. The uh, the Justice one was really cool. Like hearing yeah. remastered Seattle '89 on vinyl was like, oh, okay, <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> um, but like one of my favorite things for all these releases it's just hearing like the, the riff tape stuff and yeah uh, yeah it's something we talk in byzantine all the time it's just how great the blackened main riff is like it's one of the greatest mm. metal riffs of all time in our opinion and in that justice that you get to hear jason's like little little riff tape with that on it and like hear him like kind of playing it for james and it's like man that's that's how these songs start, but it's it's weird to think like that's how one of the best riffs ever written kind of started on one of these little 
double tape. So just like just like the rest of us, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's yeah. what's crazy is when you really yeah. when you get down to it, like getting the, yeah, getting that look and and just the uh, how much how much they let us look behind the curtain. I think is so cool. Yeah, and when the box sets first started coming out, I remember you know getting the Kill 'Em All one and, and just thinking like, man, by the time we get to the Black album, you know, by the time we get to load and reload, like there's just because there's going to be so much more because there's just yes. more, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wild that there's really like the puppets era, there's really no like, um, like the, the live video stuff. There's no like, uh, like pro shot stuff from that area, at, at least that I remember Not much, uh, outside yeah. of like, there was that show in 85 where they, I think they debuted Disposable Heroes at that show. I can't remember exactly if that was on the puppets box set or the, or the lightning one, but yeah, the, it's just, you know, there's just all bootleg stuff from that era, but then, you know, we're, we're just, it's just going to be a, a treasure trove of, <laughs> of pro shot stuff from here on out. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I'm, you know, as much as I'm not really a fan of St. Anger, I'm kind of interested to see what wow. pops up. That. Think about that. Yeah. Are they going to put some Presidio session yeah. stuff on there? Are we going to, yeah. <laughs> are we going to have, there... are we going to have jaw rule and Swiss beats on that box? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be interesting, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of, cool sound of stuff from the black album that i'm really excited to get my hands yeah on. oh for sure every one of those man like yeah even like what's going to be in a death magnetic box or yeah yeah it's just it's so cool the way they've been doing this and from a business perspective how they own all the masters and i think i read that they even own a vinyl pressing plant yeah make mm-hmm. their own vinyl which is especially yeah. right now when you know there's this backlog where everybody's having to wait nine months to to get their vinyl i mean there's probably yeah. no metallica backlog it's just them. <laughs> nope they just do it whenever they want to i guess their own plan i would love to have uh you back on at some point yeah um, absolutely i could Anytime. talk about this stuff with you forever um, same yeah <laughs> so really scratch the surface yeah exactly i know and, and that's that's my favorite thing about this podcast too is when you get the right people on like we can go for 90 minutes and feel like yeah. we just got into it <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it it's been a pleasure awesome likewise 